I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for business, for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Pushkin. Right on this episode of Some of My Best Friends Are, we are traveling to the south. Man, I'm already there with that music, but this is an adventure episode, a journey, right? Yep. We're going to talk about a trip that you and I took last summer to Tennessee. That's right. To Sawana University, which is also known as the University of the South. Yes, that's right. In fact, they like Suwani a little bit more these days. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But this was part of a conference. You and I were there with a bunch of really incredible people, writers and artists some scholars. And, you know, it was an opportunity to do something you and I have never done, certainly not done together, which is to think about Southerness, to think about what it means to be Southern in the 21st century. And to even personally think about whether or not I could identify in this way um, as a non-white person, like, like, does that even include me? Yeah, or, or, or hell, does it include me, you know, like <laughs> a northerner, a Jewish person, somebody married to a black woman with, with biracial kids? Yeah, yeah. You know, we haven't really had a chance to digest exactly all that we took in you know, to, to be surrounded by, by Southern whites at a Southern white institution and kind of like meeting them on their own terms at the University of the South. I hear you, Khalil. Well, well come on, carpetbagger. Let's head south. <laughs> all right. All right. I don't have a banjo, but I got my blue shoes. How about that? So to get to Tennessee, I traveled from Chicago, 
That's right. I flew in from New Jersey. And the two of us, <laughs> we met up at the Nashville airport. And, you know, Sewanee is on a mountaintop about 100 miles southeast of Nashville. So the university sent this driver to pick up a group of us. Yeah. So this driver, really awesome person, his name's Benny Humes. Uh, and he he kind of was like our ambassador for the moment. He was you know, a black man deeply immersed in the country music scene, much to our surprise. <laughs> yeah, so a woman in our group in the passenger seat got him talking about all the people he's driven. I drive. I've okay. driven everybody in country music. Right. There's nobody, nobody that I haven't driven. Dolly Parton? Absolutely. Wow. Reba McIntyre, the Judds, uh, Chris Stapleton. I was with him last week. Uh, Vince Gill. Uh, have you ever heard of Brooks and Dunn? Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. I hang out with them quite a bit. Man, I loved Benny. And, I still uh, don't know who Brooks and Dunn is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so as you know, Khalil, in the 2010s, I actually lived with my family in Nashville yes, for I about remember. five years. And then we moved back to Chicago. Mm -hmm. Um so I have a lot of experience, uh, not only with the South, but specifically with Music City, which is what people call Nashville. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't surprising to me at all when <laughs> Benny said that he was also a songwriter. Well, it goes a little something like this. I'm in love with the woman. Uh, uh, I'm in love with the woman. I'm in love with a woman, a woman that I can't stand. That's <laughs> I love that. I'm in love with a woman I can't stand. Man, ain't that the truth from back, you know. I'm, <laughs> no, that came out the right way. <laughs> I know what that's like from back in the you, day. You mean not currently? <laughs> that's not before currently. Your, before your 25-year marriage, however long you've been <laughs> exactly. married. Exactly. You know, yeah. And in fact, you know, if you haven't experienced that emotion, whether it's a, a, a woman singing about a man she can't stand, you have never really truly been in love. How about that? Yeah. Well, I, I wish Benny the best in both songwriting and love. What a great guy. So <laughs> we get to campus. You know, it takes about two hours. We pull onto campus. And like I said, it's on a mountain. And... It is beautiful. You pull, you pull through these gates. There are thousands of acres of woods with these vistas overlooking a valley. The buildings are this limestone. Mm -hmm. And we get dropped off at our dorms, which are on the intersection, the corner of Mississippi Street and Georgia Street. I'd never been there, but you've been there before, right? You have a friend uh, who, who had actually yeah. invited you yeah, there. Yeah, the reason that we were there is because my buddy Adam Ross, he's the editor of the Sewanee Review, which mm -hmm. is this literary magazine that's published out of the University of the South, out of Sewanee. And, you know, he invited us because I'm his buddy, but he's also a fan of the podcast. And he realized that even though you and I are Northerners and we don't like necessarily talk about the South, in a lot of ways, the big question that they were asking there of like, what is Southern identity? Who is Southern? Can it be more expansive? We ask variations about that in terms of like, you know, how to reckon with the with America's uh, difficult past, That's you right. know, the sense of a deeply divided and unequal country is a question that they they were wrestling with there. That's right. And it's and it's not unreasonable, both in terms of how we think about our own conversations, these ongoing conversations we have, but like how much is America is the South? 
I mean, yeah. so like, yeah, that's exactly you know, that, right. <laughs> that that is like overhanging this whole question. So, I mean, first of all, just to echo your point, this is in a beautiful place. I mean, it's so beautiful they call it the mountain, um, because yeah, they just call it the mountain. They just like, call it the, the mountain. mountain. And yeah. but this school has a pretty unique story. So the first I learned about it was a marker on campus, which you see as you enter the campus. And the first thing it tells you is that the school sort of was built in 1858, right before the Civil War. And mm -hmm. what you learn is that the school was dedicated to raising up a group of Southern elites who would basically defend the interest of slaveholders. This would mm. be the Harvard, the Yale, the Princeton of Southern slaveholders elites. It is the only institution of higher education um, designed for this explicit purpose. The explicit purpose, like to promote the South, the civilization of slavery, all that stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. So that was the original founding of the school. Then during the actual fighting of the Civil War, Union soldiers march up this mountain and they destroy the university's central building. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so 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 then a couple years after the war, the university rebuilds and reopens. Slavery has been abolished. That's right. By 1868, they rebuild the school and it's still fabulously wealthy even after right. the war. I mean, they're made up, the school is made up of the slaveholding elite. They're still okay. committed to the memory of the South's slaveholding past. And this place becomes like an engine for the creation of the lost cause narrative. Hey, they want let's define let's define what that is, the lost cause narrative. Go ahead. Sure. The lost cause narrative was a belief that the South had been noble in its defense of slavery, that it was a righteous way of life, that Northerners had plundered the South, had violated the Constitution, you know, essentially had had done this illegal occupation and had set the nation on this ruinous path by upsetting the natural order of things, which in the most explicit way was putting black men politically on an equal plane with white men. And that yeah, lost yeah. cause narrative shaped, shaped an entire several generations of Southerners well into the 20th century. And, and yeah, arguably and it, is, is, still, <laughs> is still with us today. And as you said earlier, that this is a school that is grappling with that past in all sorts of ways, even that it likes to be called Sewanee now rather than the University of the South, that, you know, it's, it's better marketing. And the two of us arrived, they were there for this conference. And even though I told you that, that I lived in the South, mm -hmm. I never felt Southern in any way. And I lived in Texas also for a while. I yeah, always I felt that. like a visitor. And so the whole idea of being Southern, it seems alien to me. Um, and like, you know, I can, we we're talking about this fraud history and I can always say that's over there. That's mm. not me. That's somebody else. But I, I got to say that, that being on campus and talking to all these amazing people for, for several days, it made me think that, you know, we are all kind of Southern in the sense that this is our history. It's American history. And we can't say it's over there or down there. It's something that we all have to, 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 to think about and wrestle with. Yeah, I agree. That's, I mean, uh, that's fascinating because to some degree, until we got in the car with our driver singing, you know, and, and his, his own total embrace of like country music, I had also been feeling a bit alienated and disconnected from like this whole, this whole idea. Like, what is it that we're actually doing? But when I got there and I started meeting people and I started thinking about 
the, 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 the question on the table, what does it mean to be Southern? What is a Southern identity? It really forced me to be honest about the fact that I am third generation removed from Mississippi and Georgia. I mean, my right. grandmother was born in Georgia. My great grandfather was born in Mississippi. And while I knew my grandmother and not my great grandfather, uh, the stories they carry with them, who they are, forced me to think more carefully about my relationship to the South. And, and you know, it's, it's a little bit painful, but it's also part of me. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, this big question of what it means to be Southern. Can it, can it be more expansive? I've interviewed many successful people over the years. And one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. And the mockingbird can sing like the crying of a dove. And I can't tell my daughters all the things that I'm scared of. But I am not afraid of that bright glory up above. Dying's just another way to lead the ones you love. We are back on Some of My Best Friends Are at the University of the South, Sewanee, giving you the sounds of the South. Mm-hmm, that's right. <laughs> we are at this conference, attending a whole bunch of programming, listening to really smart people. And every day, 30 of us attendees would gather. I mean, it was awesome for what they called salons and would open with a song or a poem like the one you just heard. That was from this amazing guy named David Proctor. Such a beautiful song. Yep. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. And, and it really set everyone in this intentional mood to have these deep and honest conversations, which were about Southerness, about what it meant to be Southern. Mm -hmm. And so on the first day that we were there, the two people leading the salon conversation, one was Woody Register, mm -hmm. a white historian from Alabama who attended Sewanee as an undergraduate and is now a professor there. And the other person was Andrea Abrams, a black anthropologist and a writer. She's from Mississippi, and she now works at a college in Kentucky. 
Yeah, yeah. And you forgot to mention, uh, much to our surprise while we were traveling <laughs> with Andrea, is that she's the sister of Stacey Abrams. Stacey the, Abrams. Yeah, the, the voting rights advocate who ran for governor and Georgia and is now a Howard University professor. That Abrams family is one talented family. Yeah, and they definitely represent a kind of way of, of a new South, a different way of thinking about the South. Mm-hmm. And so we're in the salon, and Woody and Andrea talked about they, their very complicated relationships to their own Southern identity. They, they said that they were both on a kind of life journey of confronting and trying to deal with their own roots. Yeah. And, and Woody told this incredibly powerful story about the time after he graduated from college and he goes up to New York City to get advice from one of his mentors, who is a history professor at NYU. I was telling him that I was planning on going to graduate school the next year, but that I was ready to leave the South. Uh, and he said, you can't leave the South. And I said, he said, even if you leave the South, you won't leave the South. And I said, no, 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 don't be silly. I want to get out of the South. And he said, well, every time you open your mouth, I hear slavery. Every time in your voice, I hear the history of slavery. Wow. Yeah. No, I yeah. mean, I, I remember when he said it sitting there and I was every, my every mouth time dropped. you open your mouth, <laughs> yeah, every time you open your mouth, I hear slavery. Yeah. My mouth dropped. That's, then. that's what I hear when you uh, talk. And, but it, it, honestly, it's just putting uh, words to an experience that I've always experienced, meaning that someone white and Southern speaks in that way. Um, as, as Zora Neale Hurston would say, you know, the map of Dixie is on their tongue. And, yeah. and it's like, you know, your, your suspicions go up, at least for me. And so when Woody said that, I was like, oh, it's not just me. Like, that <laughs> is a thing. <laughs> now, even, even white people amongst themselves are saying that to one another. That's right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and if I'm really honest, I mean, this is not unconscious bias. This is explicit bias. Like, again... If I'm in a space and a white person opens their mouth and that's what comes out, you know, my sensibilities are sharper. I'm, yeah. I'm, it doesn't mean I feel like I'm threatened or in any imminent danger. It just means my sensibilities shift. I'm, I'm yeah. aware yeah. of something that is, that is the historical legacy of this past. Yeah, and Woody was telling a story, and what an what a open and wonderful person to do it, that he wanted to run away from this. Mm-hmm. And his, his mentor was saying, hey, man, you can't. Yeah. Like you have to, and even in your work and your life's work, you have to deal with this because it is who you are. So after Woody spoke, Andrea spoke next. And she talked about for her as a black woman, how she equated Southern identity, surprise, surprise, with whiteness. That was a mouth drop too. And Southernness is whiteness. Southernness is the Confederate flag. Southernness is white cookbooks that don't talk about Black, black people. Southerness is white hospitality. Southerness is Eudora Welty and William Faulkner's best writers. Um, Southern heritage is the erasure of blackness. Yeah, and then and then Andrea said that you know here she is a black person, and she said that as a girl in Gulfport, Mississippi, she and her family would drive past these gorgeous plantation houses, and what she wanted. She wanted that. She wanted to be part of that culture. Mm-hmm. It was gray, and it had two white curving staircases that led to the second floor back balcony. And when we drove by, I would imagine myself 
coming, descending the staircase in my Southern Belle dress <laughs> to meet my suitor, and we would walk along the beach, right? Not thinking, Andrea, you would have been in the back of the house. Um, so I understood slavery, I understood 20th century racism, and yet when I imagined the South and myself as a Southerner, I was white, right? Yeah, that last line that she just said, when I imagined the South and myself as a Southerner, I was white. Yeah. That's that's what I meant by another mouth drop moment because like she's a well-educated doctor of anthropology. She's written extensively about race in the South. And yet what she's saying is the power of whiteness to define nationality, to define who counts, whose lives matter was so blinding in her childhood that when she imagined herself as someone pretty and successful and someone whose life mattered, she imagined herself in a white woman's body. That's, 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 that is something. I mean, I don't know quite what the word I want to say is, but it's, that's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. You you want to be like, that's fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) But, but as, as Andrea and Woody were talking in front of us, Woody responded to her by saying, I also wanted to be in that plantation house. Yeah. And it was also denied to me. Yeah. I had no access to it. Yeah. What did yeah. you think he meant? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, it was it was puzzling at first. And I was like, oh, of course, right? This is about class because the plantation mm-hmm. elite was a tiny minority. The overwhelming experience of white Southerners was to be part of a yeoman class, meaning working class at best, landless and poor at worst. And what... Woody was admitting in this moment is that the Southern gentry represented the aspirations of everyone, that that he couldn't embody it, but he wanted it. Uh, And that that helped me think a a lot about what he'd said earlier, too, when the professor had said to him, Woody, you have to go back. Because I think part of that connection is that Woody was someone who was in touch with himself enough to do something positive with that history, to make something of a different kind of self. And both of them are. I mean, they talked about being on a life journey and trying to run away from their past of being Southern and actually coming back to it and reclaiming it in some way. And and we, we, you and I had conversations with, you know, many of the attendees there and other, other black Southerners. Um, And I remember another person telling us a black Southerner saying that, you know, he and others thought of themselves as born again Southerners, mm-hmm. that they had escaped the South, but they came back and they're like, you know, embracing it on their own terms now. They're redefining it Southern as not, as Andrea said, whiteness, but also as blackness. They were expanding the definition of it. Yeah. And I, I really appreciated that because it helped to put in context that that part of what's been happening in this country is that people are like, why should we give up our own heritage? I mean, you know, it was a it was a terrible experience for black people in the context of what happened, you know, both during slavery and afterwards, but it's still their roots. And so this whole notion of like born again Southerner, return migration was very much a sub-theme of many of the conversations uh, that people yeah. had. Yeah, someone I remember somebody talking at the conference and saying that the the whole notion of Southern is so unlike any sense of identity in America. This vast region, you know, that expands from like 
you know, whatever, Oklahoma to Florida or something. (laughs) And it's so varied. And to say, like, we're all stamped by this. Um, Nowhere else in the country do we identify regionally that much. Yeah. And and so he was saying, basically, like, maybe you abandon this concept altogether. Yeah. And, And the other side of the coin, right, is like, you know, America's a big place. Uh, we've talked about the fact that the Confederacy never died and it is indeed elements of it are resurgent. And no part is com- is uncomplicated by race and racism, but like, do I want to be in a part of the country where <laughs> like it yeah. is the core values of the country? You know, this idea of of anti-blackness as, as we know it and as it's unfolded in places right now that are passing all this crazy legislation aimed at black history, you know, no, not for me. Um, Meaning you, you're like, I'm just not going to go live in those spots. I'm, I'm, I'm going to avoid yeah, them. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite there yet with the born-again Southerner, even through three generations removed. <laughs> well, you, yeah, you were never, <laughs> yeah, you're, I see what you mean. You weren't born there in the first place, but you're saying your people were. All That's right. right. All right. Yeah, yeah. And so we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, Ben. So look, um, the past is a past, but of course... It's not even really past. So <laughs> one of my favorite things uh, Faulkner. was talking to one of the professors there uh, at Sewanee, a black woman named Tiffany Momin. We learned so much Incredible. talking to her about her work as a public historian. And she shared so much with us about what it's like to be a black faculty member, um, to be a black person in a place like Sewanee. Mm, yes, yeah. Tiffany told us that she is from Memphis. It's also a, a, a predominantly black city. Uh, Nashville is predominantly white. And here we are even further east and further south on this mountaintop. But what I love about Memphis is just the culture. Like that, that African-American history, that culture is just bubbling out of, out of the ground. When I hit um, from Nashville down to Memphis on I-40, as soon as I hit those Memphis exits, the sunroofs open, the windows down, because I'm like, we have to take all of this in. And the thing that I loved so much about growing up in Memphis um, was that blackness was celebrated. 
Yeah, yeah. No, Memphis is a is a really powerful place. Of course, you know, it has a tortured history from King's assassination to the recent Tyree Nichols uh, killing, you know, but it's the place that embodies all those contradictions. And, you know, Tiffany yeah. ends up leaving her home city of Memphis and she heads to the mountain. <laughs> she heads to the University of the South uh, where, you know, it's a small number of black students, small number of black people. They they only yeah, tenured yeah. their first black professor and like, you know, hired their first black professor in like 1970. Yeah. I mean, we, we had at the conference a few black graduates of the school. And I remember one woman told me about going to Suwannee in the 1990s. And out of about 1,700 students, she said 13 were black students. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow. That's a pretty small number. Yeah. They're yep, more, yep, there's yep. a higher percentage today, but, but ain't that many. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and Tiffany told us something that happened her first year teaching at Suwannee. There was a racist incident at a lacrosse game. She That's said right. that Suwannee's white students in the stands watching the game yelled racist epithets at the opposing team's black players. Bananas. And it made national news. Some Suwannee students were protesting and demanding that these students from their own school be reprimanded. And the whole thing just like was very unsettling to Tiffany. I, I was so uncomfortable that I went back to my office. I wrote my students an email and said, I don't feel comfortable here today. So we're, I'm going to cancel class. I'm going back home. Um, I'll see y'all in a few days. Because it was, I just, something bubbled up in me that was like, you have to get out of here. So, oh. I mean, yeah, like... Uh, this is even crazier, right? Because Sewanee had actually hired its first black president. He, he carried the title of president right. of, of the university and he was the vice chancellor, um, which is the title subordinate to the Episcopal bishop, who is the, the quote unquote chancellor. He's president at the time of the lacrosse incident. And what comes out of this is that he has to represent this school with this racist fucking history. <laughs> so like the yeah. whole world is topsy-turvy. He lasts less than a year there. He quits after a year. Well, he little, quits after a year, yeah. but, it's, but he quits within the context where uh, his home is vandalized and there's racial epithets, you know, uh, directed towards him on campus. And yeah. people, you remember, like, people told us yeah. that he yep. told them that he was wearing a bulletproof vest on campus because he didn't feel safe. <laughs> that <laughs> is crazy. That is totally right. crazy. Yeah. All right. So that, that also gets me back to Tiffany's work. So part of her job at Sewanee at the university is to uncover and start to make sense of the school's racist past. She works with the school's Roberson Project on slavery, race, and reconciliation. And through that project, she has to dig through the school's archives. She looks at old documents, mm -hmm. old letters, you know, right. these personal papers between people. And it's kind really like I do for excavate. Yeah, but it's specifically <laughs> like if only you looked at, you know, excavating examples of of racism, of when mm -hmm. people who were part of the school That's kind of what I do did for something. Yeah. And so, you know, she was in the, so she's looking at the university sort of all their entanglements with slavery and segregation and racism. So Swanee is very much so, so um, the poster child for celebrating the lost cause. It doesn't go away. Um, from the very 
beginnings of the university, you know, words in our, our university charter saying that, you know, the university is founded in the land of the son and the slave, founded to make benevolent masters, slash enslaver. And it, it's just sort of this thing that never goes away and that in many ways the university begins to feed, right? And if you feed something, it, it grows. Um, and you see that here. It's, it's all over this landscape. You cannot throw a stone and not hit a building that has some kind of connection to, to the lost cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, I remember her saying that, and uh, it, it made my skin shiver because in, in most contexts, you know, people are trying to get rid of the name on a building, <laughs> you know, a like, building, a I, singular building, one building. And I remember asking her, I was like, all right, well, let's start throwing the stones. Like, let's look in all directions. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, it wouldn't just be the name of buildings. Yep. She was like, it would be the names of grants and awards. And they actually like named trees and gardens. So it was yeah. like every tree too. Like you have to look at those. Like there were placards, there were scholarships, there were literary societies. Yeah. I mean, it was really meaningful to talk to Tiffany about this, a, a black professor at that college, at that university, talking about these experiences. And it's both like she's physically there. And then this is also her her actual work is to look into this past. And so before, you know, I asked her the exact same question that we had been exploring at Sawani as part of these salons. Mm-hmm. What is this expanded notion of Southern identity? I wanted to hear what she had to say. I would say that being here at Sawani um, has not affected how I see myself as a Southerner. I see my connection to Sawani as a completely different thing. Um, to me, my Southern is who I am as a Southerner is informed by my roots. It's informed by my childhood in Memphis. It's informed by my parents' childhood in, in, in Arkansas and Mississippi. And um, that that's what I latch on to. It, it, it's a, it's a, for me, it's like an ancestral connection to the South. And um, despite um, the, the, some of the tragedies of the South, right? Some days it's, it's when I'm in that archive and I come across um, some of those documents, it's hard to think of myself as, as, as Southern. So I, but it's, but when I think of my family and the, in the context of my life, um, that's where that, that connection rings true and, and comes back home for me. Oh man, man. Uh. <laughs> she's holding those two things separate. She's telling us that. And even as she's saying it, they're, they're like, combine. <laughs> it's like, I'm holding these two things separate, my Southern identity as a black person and, and what we've been talking about. And then even as she's saying it, they get blended together. And yeah. there is something amazing about that campus that the coexistence of these and even the actual work of the past, like it is, you know, their boots are muddy, like they're in it. They're in it in a way that's meaningful, like, because they're also, they're also grappling with this past. Yeah. You know, I, I had a little different experience um, with thinking about Tiffany's place there because I think this is where, like, the line between Northern and Southern gets really thin. Um, you know, that sense of, like, carrying the contradictions of, like, I belong here just like anybody else, and yet uh, so much of this place tries to erase me is not just something you ex- that, that you experience at Sewanee or anywhere yeah, in the you're, South. You're talking you're, about like Du Bois and the Tunis. 
yeah, Du Bois and the Tunis, but in just being black in America. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. and so there's something really visceral, I think, in what Tiffany shared in that moment. And there's certainly something visceral about uh, being surrounded from the flora and fauna to the signage and the plaques and, and tombstones with this celebration of, of systemic racism and white supremacy. Uh, but you only have to crash, scratch the surface in so many other ways, in so many other parts of the country uh, to get at that same root. And um, I applaud Tiffany for, for being so honest with herself and with, with herself. Her, her colleagues yeah. about what she's experiencing. That to me is inspirational. It's courageous. Um, gives me fuel, you know, like for the for these yeah. moments when I feel alienated uh, in other places. Man, I I, I want to say that I loved going on this trip with you. It was amazing <laughs> to experience it all and to talk about it while we were going through it, and now get to talk about it a year later. I do need to add uh, that my favorite moment of the entire trip uh this poet was was you know in a salon with 30 people there was was reading this powerful poem about about animal cruelty and about caring for dog that was dying and was mm. suffering and it was like a metaphor for um having to deal with this this ugliness but still loving it and she was deep into it and there was total silence but all you could hear in the room was her reading and you chewing almonds. Like the whole room is looking at you eat almonds while this woman is reading this poem. 30 people. That was my favorite moment. I'm sorry to say. And I'll, I, I will die on my grave and remember that moment. <laughs> well, 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 all right. So I wasn't being disrespectful, but I had no, a choice. No, you were to, being you. No, no, I had a choice to make. You, you were hungry. I, it was either fall asleep because that poem wasn't hitting me <laughs> or eat these almonds so I could try to stay awake. And so I chose the, I chose the almonds. And it wasn't just me. We went back to the dorm and I said, there was a group of 20 of us. And I said, hey, just curious, did anyone here um, hear Khalil eat those almonds? And the whole room then talked about it for like three hours. Like we had another salon just about you eating almonds. <laughs> All right, man, fine. Listen, I think there's one other thing to point out. Um, and that is that uh, in these conversations with people like Tiffany, with Woody, with Andrea, all these amazing people who share their personal connections to the South, help me understand the contradictions that they wrestle with and the uh, courage that they have to help other people do better and understand, and particularly Suwanee, like to be a better institution, which yeah. in some ways is why we were all there. It was a very curated group of people. So... Amongst the curated yeah. group of people, you know, if Woody is is representing uh, a white Southerner from Alabama coming of age in the '70s, um, where was the you know Tennessean white Southerner coming of age in the '70s who actually fought against desegregation of schools, who yeah, yeah. who who didn't believe that Suwanee should be a place that welcomed black students, yeah. and how do they fit into a conversation about reckoning with the school's past? Yeah. Well, you kind of made me seem really shallow. I was talking about almonds, and you came with this really deep thing. But, <laughs> no. but I'll, I'll just, I'll just say that um, it really was important, and I still think it is, to explore this idea of like this expansive idea of southerness, because it really, as I said earlier, it made me think of an expansive notion of Americanness, 
mm-hmm. that this is our past. This Southern past that we're talking about is our past. And as divided as we are today, as much as these issues are present, um, it is continuing to do this kind of exploration. Um, and, and maybe it is always living with a kind of Tunis, but, but mm. finding ways to also reconcile that and to, to reclaim it. Man, man, look at you. All right. All, all right, Dr. Austin. All Proud right. of you. Next, next time we're on the trip, <laughs> man. I'll, I'll, uh, I love you. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's produced by Lucy Sullivan. Our associate producer is Rachel Yang. It's edited by Sarah Nix with help from Keishel Williams. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong. And our managing producer is Constanza Gallardo. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young, from his album Tubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And listen, even if you don't like it, give it a five-star rating and a review. And please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.